If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. I realized uh, that I, I skipped two students. So uh, Arden and Jazriel, uh, it's not because I don't think you don't need prayer, right? I think you need prayer. We're going to pray for you in a second. I'm sorry. As I love the church family. I'm walking back and somebody grabbed me. You forgot to. <laughs> and I was like, okay, thank you so much. So we're going to pray for you in a second. Uh, Mark chapter 10 is where we will be, uh, starting in verse 32, and then working our way all the way through verse 45. Uh, if you are with the threes and four-year-old class, uh, you guys are dismissed to go to your class if you haven't already. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 is where we'll begin reading, and then we'll pause and pray for God to grant us understanding this morning. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to the him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those whom it's been prepared and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, help us to understand your scriptures. Father, we pray that you would work the miracle of clarity. That you would help me to speak in truth this morning. And Father, that you would help the people in the room to understand 
the word of truth. God, we pray for Jazriel. <laughs> we thank you for her salvation and her most recent baptism, God. We pray that you would help her to hear your words this morning. And we pray for Arden as she pursues you uh, in relationship with you, Father, and is going through the membership class and joining our church, God. We pray that you would open her ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, by your grace and for your glory, amen. One of the things that sticks out to us about the Gospel of Mark and the interactions between Jesus and his followers is this. It's the fact that following Jesus may mean something very different than what you think it means. If there's one thing that's become clear in the Gospel of Mark about Jesus, it's that Jesus is not necessarily interested in meeting your expectations of him. He's not interested in conforming to the mold of human opinion, human intuition, human presuppositions about what he should say and how he should carry out his ministry, what he's here to accomplish. The Pharisees thought Jesus should act a certain way, should teach a certain way. The disciples thought Jesus should act and teach in a certain way. The disciples thought he should have particular priorities and values that should guide his ministry. They had it all mapped out for how the Savior of the world should accomplish his purpose. They had it mapped out how Jesus should lead his followers. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, the disciples are not portrayed as rock stars. In the Gospel of Mark, in fact, the repeated disposition of even Jesus' closest disciples, especially the closest three, Peter, James, and John, their dispositions toward Jesus don't serve as an example for us most times. They serve as a warning to us. A warning that you can be very close to the ministry of Jesus. You can hear very clear teachings of Jesus, and you can continue on imposing your own opinions of what Jesus should be like, rather than listening to what Jesus actually says. Do not impose on Jesus your own idea of what following Jesus should mean. If you're able to do that, then Jesus is not who he says he is. Your opinions, your intu intuitions, your presuppositions that you have, they are broken ones. They are corrupted by the sin within, and they are very influenced by the sinful culture around. Oftentimes, we are more influenced by the culture of ideas around us then we are influenced by the divine will and words of God. Jesus gets to set the terms on his ministry, on what following him will look like. And more specifically, Jesus gets to set the terms on what following him will look like for you, personally and individually. You gotta love that story in John where Jesus warns that Peter would one day be crucified for his faith, and Peter 
looks back at John and says, what about him? <laughs> and Jesus says, that's not for you to worry about. Jesus' teachings were countercultural. They ran against the mainstream thinking, not with it. Jesus taught contrary to the culture on issues of marriage, sexuality, sin, death, wealth, poverty, strength, weakness, hypocrisy, righteousness. Jesus taught against what the world was teaching, not with it. We do not set the agenda, we follow the agenda setter. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus has a very clear agenda. He has a very clear direction in which he is heading and which he's leading his followers. Look at verse 32. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they're amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So since Mark chapter 9, and after Peter declares, Jesus, you are the Christ, all of Jesus' geographical moves have been in a particular direction. He's been moving somewhere. And here, the somewhere is articulated. Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem. And here in Mark chapter 10, he's described as walking ahead of the disciples. There's a, there's a narrative, there's a picture Mark is painting for you of, of Jesus walking down a road. A road which leads to the big city of Jerusalem, home of the temple, home of the high priest, the Sahedrin, home of the most influential Pharisees and Sadducees in the world. And here's Jesus walking down that road ahead of the disciples to the place where he will eventually be crucified. And the disciples are trailing behind Jesus, amazed and afraid. I mean, they've experienced some pretty mild um, opposition from Pharisees and Sadducees and religious people already, and here's Jesus leading them to the place of power in the Jewish religious world. The disciples are amazed that Jesus would lead them in this direction, and they're a little fearful, they're a little uncertain of what awaits them, but Jesus is 100% certain of what awaits them. Look at verse 33. Jesus speaks to them and says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I, I, I think the thing that we're supposed to notice about this third prophecy from the lips of Jesus, which details his future. We're supposed to notice the detail in which he describes what's going to happen and the intentionality with which he walks in that direction. Jesus knows that what awaits him is arrest, condemnation, mockery, spit, flogging, and death. The cross was not a cosmic accident. It was not a mistake or a detour from the plan. It was the plan. If you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. Truth number one. 
Truth number one, King Jesus pursued the cross. King Jesus pursued the cross. He didn't get caught up in the wrong crowd. He didn't think that things were going to go differently. Jewish literature and language utilizes repetition when it wants to emphasize something, especially repetition in threes. You think of uh, the picture in Isaiah chapter 6 with angels circling around God. What do they declare out about God? Anybody know? Holy, 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 right? The repetition of three is supposed to signify he is the most holy, the holiest of all holies. He is perfectly holy. And here we have in the Gospel of Mark the third time in a series of our cycle, we saw it in Mark chapter 8, we've seen it in Mark chapter 9, and now we see it in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus describes in detail, I'm going to the cross. This is what's going to happen. And all three times, the disciples don't get it. In fact, the disciples, they just simply refuse to take Jesus' words literally. I mean, I don't know what this looked like. I don't know if it was just like, ah, Jesus, good parable. I like that one. I'm going to think about it later. Uh, cool analogy. Not really sure what it means yet, but we're going we're gonna to keep pondering on it, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, I'm literally, for a third time, guys, I'm going to the cross for a reason. They refuse to believe that Jesus, the most honorable one, could ever die in the world's most humiliating and shameful way. I mean, everything that they learned about Jesus thus far was that Jesus deserved to sit in the place of highest honor. Jesus deserved the throne above every throne. I mean, from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we have seen the glory of Jesus put on display I mean, Mark 1.1 introduces the whole story in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John the Baptist introduces him in Mark chapter 1, verse 7, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, and the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. When he's baptized, the literal sky rips open and the presence of God is seen descending upon Christ as the Father's voice booms, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. From there, Jesus begins his ministry and he exercises soul authority over demons, diseases, disabilities, and death. When he spoke, he spoke in such a way that the people said, we've never heard authority like this before. Thus far, Jesus has shown himself to have authority to forgive sins, to promise eternal life. He exercised rule over wind and waves and the metaphysical world, multiplying bread to the thousands. For all extensive purposes, Jesus deserves to sit on the highest throne above all the earth. There's nothing outside of his rule, authority, power, influence, control. And so, yeah. The disciples struggled with the concept of someone of that kind of honor would willingly pursue a Roman crucifixion. In an honor-shame culture, I mean, this was especially unthinkable. The shock factor comes in, uh, you see it on display in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. I think you could make a good argument that Mark chapter 10, verse 45 is the theme verse for the entire gospel. You find the paradox even in the language. Look at verse 45. For even 
The word even is, is supposed to signal in your brain, this is unbelievable, right? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, why is the Son of Man title significant? Because it comes from a prophecy in Daniel 7, and listen to how the Son of Man is described. Daniel catches a vision of the one true God, and then this is what he sees, verse 13 of Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus deserves. He deserves everyone to serve him. Him, he came from the clouds of heaven. He's the king with all dominion, glory, kingdom. It stretches to every people, nation, language. He's the king over all kingdoms. And he's a king who apparently stepped off of his throne in heaven and into a broken world to die the death for his rebellious people. I mean, verse 45 says, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. It means Jesus literally came to pay the price to purchase back traitors, (laughs) to purchase back people who had rebelled against him. He purchased you and me back with the price of his blood. This is why he came. It's why he was going to Jerusalem. It's why he was walking ahead of his disciples. King Jesus pursued crucifixion and for the third time he explains this and for the third time his disciples show themselves to misunderstand entirely what following this servant king would look like verse 35 James and John sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him teacher we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I really wish I could hear inflection in the scripture, you know, that question. I'm not really sure how to say it. Like, what do you want me to do for you? Or what do you want me to do for you? You know, I don't, I don't know how it was asked. <laughs> I wish I knew. Verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So Jesus teaches, I'm going to die a pretty miserable death. The disciples are like, well, that was weird. (laughs) And then here comes John and James sort of bebopping up. Jesus, we have a request for you. And now remember, James and John, and Peter specifically, they were the ones that Jesus had taken up on the mountain in Mark chapter 9. Does anybody know what happened on top of the mountain in Mark chapter 9? The transfiguration, right? So James, John, and Peter saw Jesus transform before their very eyes. His clothes became radiant, intensely white. Moses was there. Elijah was there. It was a crazy, crazy little get-together. They see the glory of Christ. They experience the extent of his glory and power. And rather than that humbling them, they wanted in on the power. I mean, they wanted 
a part of the kingly rule to come. They wanted in on the authority that was to come. They were envisioning a day where Jesus took his place as king of kings over the whole world, and and they were happy with Jesus being center stage, but man, they wanted a close seat (laughs) to his left or his right. They wanted to know how they could have a seat of glory at the right or left hand of Jesus. And we, we know that from later in the text, we'll see in a second, because the other disciples are indignant at them, that they're specifically wanting better seats than the other ten. <laughs> they wanted what all people want. Power, honor, authority, recognition, and praise. They wanted greatness with all of its wonderful benefits. And we can find ourselves rolling our eyes at these guys, or we can see ourselves in them. Jesus comments in verse 42 on the human instinct to grasp for power and authority and glory all over the world. He says in verse 42, uh, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Truth number one, the amazing thing about this text is that King Jesus pursued a cross. But the other thing that becomes clear in this text is truth number two, sinners pursue the throne. Sinners pursue the throne. This is how the world works. We do the exact opposite of what Jesus did, right? So Jesus' rightful place is on a throne over the universe. He steps off of the throne that he does deserve to take a cross that he doesn't deserve. And we, on the other hand, try to climb onto a throne we do not deserve. And Jesus forgives us of that and keeps us from the death we do deserve. People, you and I, we strive for more authority, more power, more influence. And oftentimes what people does with this is that they use their authority, power, and influence to rule over or to lord over others in a way that tears down the other and builds self up. See, Jesus has all rule, all authority, all power, and he uses it to bless others and save others and serve others. He used his authority to serve. We use authority to be served. And we see this in all of life, right? I mean, we see it on the news right now. I mean, we're watching a power-hungry Russian dictator order the shelling of civilians and imprisoning his own people. We're seeing hunger for power and authority and the use of it to tear down rather than to build up. But on a smaller scale, do we not see this in the rule of bad bosses, abusive spouses, negligent parents, Glory-seeking pastors. We see it in our own hearts when we gossip about someone else to make ourselves seem praiseworthy at the expense of the other. We all want to sit at the place of honor. We all want greatness according to our vision of it. And James and John are asking a very natural question. Jesus, will you place us at the place of honor? 
We're a part of your inner circle. You chose us to go up and see you on the mountain of transfiguration. We're one of the 12 chosen ones that you handpick. This seems to be where all this is going. They seem to assume that following Jesus would be the pathway to achieve their own pursuit of their own version of greatness. They seem to think that Jesus' version of greatness was their version of greatness. So rather than listening to what Jesus was saying, they projected upon Jesus what they wanted him to say. Does that sound familiar to anybody? How often do we project upon Jesus what we want him to say about our lives rather than humbly listening to what he says following him should look like? So this is how Jesus responds in verse 38. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? They said to him, we're able. Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It's for those whom it's been prepared. The disciples asked for glory, and they had no idea what they were asking for. When they asked Christ for an enthronement, they did not understand what that would entail. Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? He's going to drink a cup. The language is borrowed from the Old Testament. The cup symbolizing suffering, the cup symbolizing judgment. More specifically, Jesus was going to drink the cup of the wrath of God for sin. He was going to drink down all of God's hatred of evil, all of God's punishment for rebellion, all of the curse of sin, he was going to be baptized in it. The word baptized just means to be immersed in something, overwhelmed by something, to be, to be uh, totally submerged. This, this was Jesus' pursuit of the crucifixion. He was about to take on himself the most overwhelming force, God's wrath on human sin. Yes, Jesus was going to be clothed in purple, a purple robe, but one that would stick to his bloodied back. Yes, he was going to wear a crown, but one made of thorns. Yes, he was going to be high and lifted up under the inscription, King of the Jews, but it was going to be on a cross of crucifixion. The disciples obviously do not understand the extent of what Jesus is about to do because their reply is simply, we're able to do that. Now, Jesus does affirm that one day following him will lead. To a similar end. We learned that James would one day actually give up his life for following Christ. That John would be persecuted so heavily toward the end of his life, he would be exiled to the island of Patmos. They were going to follow in the footsteps of King Jesus, but they just don't understand what that's going to mean. It would not be a glorious sitting on the right and left hand of Jesus. Jesus denies their request. Some commentators actually believe that the, the right and left uh, spots that are reserved, some commentators, I thought this was interesting, actually believe that Jesus is referring to the thieves hanging on the crosses to his left and right. Later in Mark, we'll see that the cross of Jesus' crucifixion is the enthronement of Jesus, the place where he is most glorified. But whatever the case, James and John stand corrected and in verse 41, the other disciples get involved in it, right? Verse 41, the ten heard it, and they began to be indignant at James and John. I mean, this is kind of like a comical moment, right? I mean, can you imagine, like, 
they get corrected. James and John are like, oh, man. And then the other ten sort of come on and like, they like smack James in the back of the head. Are you kidding me? Are you, tr- you trying to be better than the rest of us, James and John? They get mad because they're obviously attempting not just to get favor with Jesus, but to get more favor than the rest. Trying to sit on thrones that are more important. And so Jesus uses the opportunity to call in all the disciples and to correct them. Verse 42 through 44, he corrects them. Verse 42, we already read. He he says, this is how the world thinks about power and authority. But then verse 43, he says this. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So, So Jesus pursues the crucifixion. Sinful people pursue thrones of greatness. But truth number three, kingdom people pursue servanthood. The rest of the world may be striving for greatness and lording it over others by way of platforms and power. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. You hear the authority in that statement? (laughs) Not like a you shouldn't do this. No, it it shall not be so among you. Jesus' followers will see the world differently. Jesus' followers will have different priorities, different aspirations, different guiding principles. Jesus' followers will see servanthood as the pathway to true greatness. Humility as the doorway to exaltation. They will see the last place as the prerequisite to the first place. They will see crucifixion as the precursor to resurrection. Now, all this is easy to talk about in a general sort of distant way, but do you see, think about your life, do you see selfless, sacrificial, unrecognized service as the essence of being a Jesus follower? Do you see submitting to others as glorious? Giving up your rights and privileges for the good of another as a privilege. See, authority and power are not evil things in and of themselves, but they are evil in the hands of evil men. When they are wielded not like Christ. Authority and power can be wonderful things when they are for the purpose of serving the other for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve i mean what what would it look like for you to follow the example of the servant king the word serve in this passage is actually a familiar word to us the word serve in the greek is the word diakonos which we get our word deacon from servanthood is so important in the kingdom of god you, you get this servanthood is so important in the kingdom of god that god designed the church to have a particular office within the church called the deacon, the, the servant. Sort of like the, the, a servant who orchestrates other service ministries whom the rest of the church can look at as an example and say, okay, that is what I aspire to be. In Acts 6, the church became overwhelmed with a not-so-glorious ministry. Widows that needed support. Not just any widows, but Jewish widows and Greek-speaking widows who were fighting with one another. (laughs) 
and they needed care. I wonder if, like, at the end of the service, the apostles were, like, pleading with the congregation, kind of like pleading for VBS workers, right? <laughs> like, I promise it's a glorious thing in heaven, right? <laughs> I need somebody <laughs> to help with this ministry. So they searched the congregation for servants, and they searched for people who would give themselves sacrificially for an area of service that was not glorious, they looked for people who would aspire to a different kind of greatness, a Christ-like kind of greatness. So seven men come forward that are humble to do a not-so-glorious ministry of organizing and carrying out food distribution. And look what happens in Acts 6-7 when servants begin to serve. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Listen to what Paul says about the deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons, as servants, they gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see the connection between even the way the church is structured and between Jesus' words in Mark 10, 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Deacons are men and women in the church who sacrifice their time and their talents and their energy to carry out ministries that would other, otherwise overwhelm other members of the church or overwhelm the pastors in keeping them from their ministry. And one of the things that has burdened me, even as I was studying this text about broader evangelicalism, about seminary world and seminary life in our own church, is how few people aspire to the office of deacon. Man, it's easy to find people who will take on a responsibility that will put them on a platform. It's easy to find people aspiring to teaching or leadership. It is difficult to find people who will take on responsibility and the burden of serving in not-so-glorious ways. I want to close this morning with four takeaways. Four takeaways. Uh, to walk away from this text with, beginning with takeaway number one, be an ambitious servant. Be an ambitious servant. Did you see, did you hear the desire and the ambition behind John and James' requests about sitting at the place of glory? They're, they're, they're coming, they're putting their necks out there for this, Right? To ask Jesus, what's it going to take for us to get into the place of glory? But we often think of service and servanthood as something we sort of stumble into. We think of serving as a thing that we will do when we're asked because we're Christians. But I want, you to, I want to urge you to consider servanthood as a thing that, that you do if you're asked, yeah, but think of it as a thing that you pursue, of a thing that you chase after. I long to be a part of a church full of ambitious servants, right? Aspiring servants. Servants who want to be God-honoring, Christ-magnifying servants in the most menial of tasks. Servants who watch for opportunities and throw themselves at them to use their giftings. Man, I was blessed. Can I just say I was blessed uh, by Zach Huner. I don't even know if he's in here today. He might be in the nursery serving. He's back there. Hey, Zach. I was blessed by Zach Huner. Um, he called me a couple weeks ago, and, uh, and he just said, hey, man, I noticed that you were, you're the one driving the church bus on Wednesday nights. He said, can I just take that from you? Can I just, 
You don't even have to worry about it. If I can't do it, I'll find somebody else to do it. Can I just take that from you? He, he just noticed something that he thought, I can do that. And he was an ambitious servant. Isn't that cool? Like, he didn't wait to be begged to do something or whatever. He just thought, there's a way. I'm good at this. There's a way I can glorify the Lord. And then somebody steals the catalytic converter off of our bus, right? And, and again, Zach says, one, I wouldn't have even known that that is what happened. Zach says, this is what happened. And he says, I can take care of that for you on my only off day. On the day in which I'm supposed to be going buy a house, I'll throw that in the mix of what I'm doing too. That's, he's just, he was just an ambitious servant, and, and, and he was blessing my soul by the example of Christ that he was showing. Not to mention, man, as we see people use their gifts and they're, they're searching and finding ways to serve, the church multiplies. The young man we're baptizing today, you know how he got to this church to hear the gospel for the first time? He was picked up by somebody who drove a bus. Somebody who committed and sacrificed a night a week, every single week, with no visible fruit from that ministry. Other than that they were tired and got home late and had to wake up early the next morning. And someone went from death to life because someone drove a bus, probably on days when they didn't even feel like it. Be an ambitious servant. Truth, or takeaway number two, embrace sacrifice. We're so much like the disciples of the gospel of Mark. We have selective hearing. We, we, we often project on Jesus. We, we, we think Jesus would never ask me to do something uncomfortable. He would never want my weeks to look too busy. I need at least five nights a week of me time, right? Jesus said to Sabbath. Sure, he said one day a week, not five, but sabbath and we project upon jesus and we and we we have this sort of made-up jesus who who doesn't want us to be uncomfortable (laughs) it's just not the jesus of the scriptures (laughs) sacrifice is the name of the game and it's a sacrifice that is eternally worth it so takeaway number three keep an eternal perspective the kingdom of god is a kingdom of wonderful reversals right Jesus humbles himself to the lowest place. And now Jesus is exalted in the highest place of honor. Every unnoticed act of service will be exalted on the last day. Jesus himself will commend you, reward you, and the joy of his presence forever and ever. Mark chapter 9, 41, from a few weeks back, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. That's amazing. That acts of service, so small, so unrecognized by others, are recognized by the king. <laughs> you know that, that on, the, on the, the last day, that there will be things that God Almighty actually commends you for? Isn't that amazing? I mean, he saved you, brought you out of, off, out of your hellbound race. Like, he's the one who gave breath in your lungs and gave you gifts to use. But on the last day, there will be moments where Jesus says, well done. Well done, the fact that you picked up Trevor when you didn't feel like it. And I've used him for my glory. 
Number four, uh, trust and rejoice in the sacrificial service of Jesus. Right? He gave his life a ransom for your soul. He came to serve in a way that would build you up and save you. Exalt him to the highest place, for he descended to the lowest place on your behalf. Let's close uh, just by directing our attention to, to Paul's application of this in Philippians 2. Uh, we'll just read this. I'll just read this out loud for us, and then we'll pray in conclusion. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and here's the reversal, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help me. Me personally, Father, help me to pursue your version of greatness and not my own. I pray that you would help me to pursue servanthood, my precious brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I pray that we would be a church full of ambitious servants, willing to sacrifice time to serve others in our congregation. And, and, and Help us not to think of that just in terms of physical needs. Help us to think of that in terms of spiritual needs. Help us to think in terms of, of serving our brothers and sisters by sitting and hearing their burdens and brokenness and getting to know them deeply and praying for them and sharing in their joys, God. Father, we just pray that we would be a church doesn't look to our own desires, but looks to the desires of our faith family around us, God. And I pray that as the world comes into this place and they see a community that looks very different than the rest of the world, that they wouldn't just hear the gospel, but they would see the gospel made visible and the examples that you have in this place. We pray this by your grace and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and we're